It's an honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never fail you nor forsake you. It's interesting that the writer puts side by side the marriage bed and money. I wonder if that's a coincidence since most marriage counselors would today put at the top of their list the trouble spots in marriage, money and sexual relations, wouldn't they? Agreement in money matters and agreement and harmony in the marriage bed are apparently not very easy to come by. Now, our focus this morning is going to be on the former, namely sexual relations in marriage, but I want to draw to your attention something that's coming here at Bethlehem. May 20th and 21st, a Friday evening and a Saturday morning, we are co-hosting with the Minnesota Baptist Conference a family conference on personal finances. And I'm going to be there, and I hope that many of you will save that date and plan to come so that we can learn how, in a day of rampant inflation, to be better stewards with our personal finances. But today we want to talk about mainly sexual relations in marriage, though you're going to see, I think, there's an interesting correlation from Hebrews between these two dimensions of our married life. Let marriage be held in honor and let the marriage bed be undefiled. That is, let sexual relations in marriage be kept pure, clean, without blemish, And all those words, undefiled, pure, clean, without blemish, are simply visual or tangible metaphors for a moral demand that the writer is making. Namely, do not sin in your sexual relations in marriage. But what is sin in sexual relations? Sin is any act or attitude that displeases God, we say. And that's true. But I find it very helpful to press our definition of sin a step further to get at the essential nature of sin in its relationship to that positive and powerful force in the Christian life, namely faith. Here's what the writer says back in chapter 11, verse 6 of Hebrews. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, that implies two things. Since sin is anything that displeases God, and since without faith you can't please God, therefore, if you don't have faith, everything you do is sin because it displeases God. And the second thing is that this suggests very strongly that there is a close connection if not a causal connection between not having faith and sinning. And Romans 14.23 confirms that connection explicitly. Paul says, whatever is not from faith is sin. 
In other words, the essential nature of those actions and attitudes which we call sin is that they are prompted or motivated by a heart that is not trusting God. The thing that makes an attitude or an act displeasing to God is that it doesn't grow out of faith in God. Sin is displeasing to God precisely because it comes from a failure to rely on God. It is not the product of faith. You may remember a sermon from last summer called What is Sin? in which I preached on this text from Romans 14:23. Down in the fellowship hall that night after the service, some of the men asked me some very good questions that made me realize that I need to explain a little bit further how it is that an act or an attitude comes from faith or doesn't come from faith. And let me try to do that very briefly now. First of all, what is this faith that produces attitudes and actions which are not sin? Hebrews 11.1, 1, just a few verses before 11.6 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That's a good definition of faith to work with. What does it mean? In other words, faith is the confidence we feel that the good things that God has promised for our futures are going to come true tomorrow and to all eternity. Faith, even though we can't see these things, is assured that they are going to come to pass. Now, go down to verse 6 again in Hebrews 11. Without faith, without this faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe... Here's two aspects of what faith is. Must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. In other words, the faith which pleases God comes to God with the full confidence that God is going to reward him with all those good things that God has promised in his word. Now, how does faith, understood like that, give birth to attitudes and acts which are not sin. Now go back to Hebrews 13:5 and we'll see how finances help here. Hebrews 13:5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. The love of money is a desire that displeases God. So he says get rid of it. Not only is it a desire that displeases God according to 1 Timothy 6:11, the love of money is the root of all sorts of other evils. So the antidote that Hebrews commends for this sinful love and all the evils that come from it is what? Contentment. Be content with what you have. But the writer doesn't leave us there all by ourselves to somehow crank up contentment on our own he goes on and gives us a basis and an inspiration for contentment, namely a promise. He says, For God has said, I will never fail you, nor forsake you. The basis of contentment with what we have is the promise of God's unfailing help 
and abiding fellowship. Now, he gets that promise from the Old Testament where we can find lots of them too. Deuteronomy 31.6 is where it comes from. Here's what the whole thing says. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. So the writer to the Hebrews is saying this. God has made such comforting, hope-inspiring, reassuring promises in his word that if we believe them, that's faith, we'll be content. We won't have that anxious insecurity that loves money. The antidote, therefore, to the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evils, is faith or contentment in the promises of God. Now, I hope it becomes obvious to you how it is that such faith produces works that are not sin and keeps us from works that are sin. If we do not have faith, if we do not trust the promise of God, I will never leave you nor forsake you, then we will feel anxious and insecure. And the deceptive power of money to make up for that insecurity will be overwhelming and we will love it. And that love will produce all sorts of sins. For example, it might incline us to steal, to get a little pleasure, to make up for what we feel we lack because we're not trusting God. It might incline us at this time of year to lie on our income tax return, lest we have to give away more than we would like. It might incline us this unbelief in God's promise not to tithe to the church, thinking that we just couldn't make it. It might incline us to forget a debt very conveniently. It was such a good friend who loaned us that money. It might incline us not to fix up our rental property. They're just poor people. They don't know the difference anyway. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, and the antidote to it is contentment. Those evils are evils because they come from unbelief in the promise of God. And now the positive side is this. If we do have faith in the promise, I will never fail you nor forsake you, then we'll be free. Free from this gnawing anxiety and insecurity that makes us crave more money or want to hold on to what we have inordinately. And we'll have, therefore, victory over all the sins that come from that craving of money. If you are content in Christ and resting in his promises, always to stay beside you, always to provide what you need to do his will, then you won't feel a compulsion to steal. You won't feel any need to lie on your income tax return. You'll be faithful and won't be negligent in paying back your debts. You won't oppress your renters by leaving your property in disarray. Instead, you'll give an honest day's work, complete accuracy on your returns, generosity to the church up to and beyond the tithe, faithfulness in retiring all your debts, and you'll do to your renters as you would have them do to you. Isn't it plain? Isn't it easy? to see how faith guards us from sin and unbelief produces sin. 
I hope that goes a long way now to answering some of those questions that were raised. Now, in case the other question is being raised in your mind, what's all this got to do with sexual relations in marriage? Let's go back and pick up the thread from Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. That means let sexual relations in marriage be without sin. Don't sin in your sexual relations with each other. But now we've seen that sin is whatever does not come from faith. Sin is what you feel and think and do when you are not taking God at his word or relying on his promises and enjoying the contentment that he gives. So, the command of Hebrews 13.4 can be stated like this. Let your sexual relations be free from any attitude or act that does not come from faith in the word of God. Or to put it positively, have only those attitudes and do only those acts in your sexual relations which grow out of contentment in the promises of God. Now, I could stop right there, just like last week I could have stopped when the general admonition had been given, and that would give great guidance to people who were sensitive. But there's an objection, I'm sure, that thoughtful people would raise at this point. It would go something like this. Well, now, if we're so content in the promises of God, why should we even seek sexual gratification? That's a good question. Paul struggled with that question. And the first answer he gave was, maybe you shouldn't. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7 now. 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll look first at verses 6 and 7. Maybe you should stay single. He says, by no means, paraphrasing, by no means am I commanding everyone to get married and gratify sexual desires. No way. All I'm saying in these verses is that sexual desire is okay, and for those who have this compelling desire, marriage is the place to satisfy it. Then look at verse 7. But, oh, I wish that you could all be single like I am. But each one has his own special gift from God and one kind and one of another. That's really a remarkable verse. I wish you all could be single. Like saying, I wish you all could speak in tongues as much as I do. But he knows it's just not God's will because God gives gifts differently. I wish you all could be free from the entanglements of family life and from this strong urge that so many of you feel to get married. Be like me. I get along very nicely and put myself out for the Lord 100% without being married. But, and he goes back and qualifies, each has his own gift from God. Whoa, it's me. If I start messing around with the gifts of God and tell you all to be single when he's given you the gift to be married. So he backs off on his wish. 
God wills some people to be married and some people to be single. That's the clear implication of that verse 7. He does not endow everyone to be a Paul. He endows some people to be a Peter. You know what Peter did. He drug his wife around with him all over Asia Minor. It says so in 1 Corinthians 9, 5. Just like my father would like to do with his wife now. But she doesn't like to travel so much. So the first answer to the question, if I have contentment in the promises of God, why should I seek sexual gratification is maybe you shouldn't. Maybe God wills you to be single. But there better be another answer, and there is another answer to the question, what does it mean that we're content on the one hand, and yet God has given some the gift of marriage wherein they should seek sexual gratification? The second answer is this. The contentment that the promises of God give us does not put a stop to all other desires, especially bodily desires. Even Jesus, whose faith was perfect, got hungry and desired food and got tired and desired rest. And sexual appetite is in that same category. The contentment of faith doesn't take it away. What then does contentment mean in relation to ongoing sexual desire? I think it means two things. One, if gratification of sexual desire is denied you through singleness, then there is the promise of abundant, an abundant portion of God's help and fellowship through faith. Philippians 4, 11 to 13 goes like this. Now, I don't complain of want, Paul says. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. I have learned the secret of facing abundance and want. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now... If Paul could be content and hungry, we can learn to be content and single. God chooses not to give sexual gratification to some people, and he gives them the ability and the gift to be fulfilled and chaste when he does it. Now, the other thing that contentment means in relation to ongoing sexual desire is that if gratification is not denied but offered through marriage, then contentment will guide us to seek it and avail ourselves of it in marriage only in ways that befit our contentment in God. To put it another way, while the contentment of faith does not put an end to our hunger and our weariness and our sexual appetite, it changes the way we go about satisfying these things. It doesn't take away hunger, but it will not let you be a glutton. Faith does not take away the desire for sleep, but it will not let you be a sluggard. Faith does not take away sexual desire, but 
but what? That's what we want to talk about now in the rest of the message. What is it in sexual relations in marriage that faith will move us to do? Now, my only regret in preaching this sermon is that it can't be about three times as long because I have really cut from things I would love to say. Maybe Noel and I will give a seminar someday on marital relations or something like that so I can say everything I'd like to say. I had 13 things I wanted to say to that retreat up there at uh, Woodlake Camp with the college people, and I'm only going to talk about three this morning. The first is this. When the ear of faith hears the word of God in 1 Timothy 4.4, which we talked about last week, namely, everything created by God is good and is to be received with thanksgiving because then it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. When the ear of faith hears that word, it believes it and therefore confesses that our bodies and our sexual appetites are good and we should thank God for them. Faith will not allow a married couple to lie beside each other and say to themselves, what we're doing is dirty. It's what they do in the porno movies. There are some people for whom that thought goes through their head. They wouldn't like it to, it just does. Maybe the way they've been brought up, maybe because they've looked at porno movies, that's one bad reason. It ought not to be the case, should it? Instead, faith says God created this desire, he created this institution, and he created this act, and they are good, and I'll thank him for them. And they are for those who believe and know the truth. It is the world, as I said last week, who have plundered God's good gifts and distorted them and corrupted them and make them instruments of destruction. But they belong rightfully to the children of God, and so faith will not let us think of our sexual relations as worldly or dirty. Let marriage be held in honor and let the marriage bed be undefiled. You wouldn't say that if it weren't possible. Secondly, faith increases the joy of sexual relations because faith enables you to be free from all past guilt. Now, I didn't say much about that last week. And the reason was because I had in my sights single people before whom the decision lay whether or not to be chaste and free or unchaste and bound. I didn't want to talk about forgiveness because the sins lay in front of them. Not always and not only, but that was my purpose. And that faced me with a problem, and I want to talk about it for just a minute. What would you say to a person who came into your office or your home and said, I uh, am going to commit a sin. And you say, what are you going to do that for? Well, I have this overwhelming desire and I just can't stop. And I said, but God is against sin. He will punish sin. 
And they say, no, God will forgive my sin. That's a common counseling issue for pastors. Somebody who stands on this side of a sin looks at it and says, I'm going to do it because God's going to forgive me. What do you say to a person like that? Well, I would just wish you could open it up for discussion. Now, I'd like to hear what you'd say. I'll tell you what I will say and have said. I would say, if you believe that what you're about to do is sin, and you decide to go ahead and do it because God has promised to forgive you, then your decision is very probably evidence that you are not born again. You are not a Christian. You are still in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul asks. God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? A person who loves God and loves Jesus Christ has been born from above, cannot walk up to the cross where Jesus is hanging, suffering for his sins, and say something like this. Jesus, I know, I know that you're there suffering for my sins. They put you there. And I know that it's your dying wish that I be free from sin and not sin anymore. But Jesus, I got this need and I can only satisfy it by sinning. And so, I know you'll understand and I know you'll understand as I thrust this other sword into your side. Now, now Jesus, it's so good it's so good to know that that blood running out of your side forgives my sin. Don't count on it. Don't count on it. Those who are born of God cannot think that way. It will not work. There's a text in Hebrews all about that kind of situation. And all I can say with Hebrews to that person is advance at your own peril. There may be no forgiveness on the other side because in this act of high-handed sin, as the Old Testament calls it, in this act you may be so hardened when you turn to seek repentance you will not find it anywhere though you seek it with tears. Don't commit it. It might be the last straw. That's all I had to say last week, you see, to the people before whom sin lay. That's not my aim this morning. I got a different group of people in view. Here's who I've got in view. Myself and all you people who stood up, who look back on sins that you committed that are making your marriage tough. Fornication that you committed. Adultery that you committed. Perhaps an incest when you were little. Perhaps a homosexual fling 
when you were a teenager. Perhaps years of habitual masturbation. Perhaps a lot of promiscuous petting. Perhaps divorce. What do I have to say to the married people who look that direction and see that? That's what I want to try to answer now. And this is what I have to say. If if it genuinely lies within you to throw yourself on the mercy of God for the forgiveness of your sins, He will wipe away all of your guilt. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. To him who does not work, but trusts in the God who justifies who? The ungodly. That's good news. Who trusts in the God who justifies the ungodly. His faith will be reckoned to him as righteousness. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven whose iniquities are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not reckon his transgressions. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not treat us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards us. As the east is from the west, so far. Has he removed our transgressions from us? There is no need for a child of God to carry into the marriage bed the guilt of his past. That takes a heap of faith, doesn't it? Because Satan loves to make us feel unforgiven for the rottenness of our past. He loves to do it. And so the writer says, resist him, firm in your faith. Take the shield of faith and guard yourself against his flaming darts. Faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Faith in the Son of God who became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Faith in the Son of God who bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might have access to the Father clean faith in that Son of God. Christ died for your sins that you might have guilt-free sexual relations. Christ died for your sins that you might have guilt-free sexual relations. Now let me clarify something else I said last week. I said in passing, that God would forgive any sin that you had committed, if you could find it within yourself genuinely to rest in His mercy and accept His promised forgiveness. But I said there are scars that may remain. And I didn't elaborate, but I want to elaborate briefly now because that has to do with us married people. I can imagine a couple, almost engaged. They're sitting together in a park, And all of a sudden, the fellow becomes very serious, bites his lip, and a tear comes into his eye, and he says, i got to tell you something. Two years ago, I had sexual relations with another girl. I was away from the Lord, and 
And I hate it. I have cried over it. I have confessed it. I think God has forgiven me. Can you, before we go any further? And over the next weeks, with tears and struggles, she finds it within herself to forgive him. And they get married. And that's good. And on their honeymoon night, they're lying beside each other. And he looks at her, and there's a tear in her eye. He says, what's the matter? I can't help but think about that other girl lying right here where I am. I can't help it. And then years later, two, three years later, he finds himself, after the novelty of this wife's body has worn off, that he himself, inadvertently, against his will, drifting back in his fantasy to that event, that one night thrilling event, and he can't get it out of his mind. That's what I mean by scars. And lots of us, you know, have them. All of us have them. Maybe you didn't commit a sexual sin like that, but all of us have committed sins that make our present life more problematic than it would be had we not committed those sins. You could just list them off. They don't have to be sexual either. But I don't want to give the impression this morning that Christ is powerless against scars either. He may not remove all the scars. But he has promised to those who love him and are called according to his purpose that he will work even in our scars, through our scars, for our great spiritual good. Now take our imaginary couple again. I prefer to think there was a happy ending. It goes like this. They worked at it. They did not give up. They knew that they were married. That was it. It was either make it or break it in that union. So what did they do? They were open with each other. They prayed together. They relied on the grace of God. They talked. They talked about everything. They did not bottle it up. He didn't bottle it up and say, I can't tell her this. I can't tell her what my fantasy is. She didn't bottle it up and say, I can't tell him that I keep thinking about that girl. They talked and talked and talked and prayed and prayed and helped each other and trusted each other and sympathized with each other and were patient. And they found their way to sexual satisfaction in marriage. It would never be the same again, but it can be good. Christ is not impotent against our scars either. Christ not only died to give us guilt-free sexual relations, he also died so that through the scars he might convey to us spiritual benefits. Thirdly and finally now, faith relates to sexual relations like this. Faith uses sex against Satan. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. The husband should give to his wife 
her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife should give to her husband also. For the wife does not rule over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not rule over his own body, but the wife does. Do not refuse one another, except perhaps by agreement for a season that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, lest Satan tempt you through lack of self-control. I love this text. Ephesians 6.16 says, Ward off Satan with the shield of faith. This text says, Ward off Satan with the shield of sexual intercourse. Right? Don't abstain too long, but come together again soon, that Satan gain no foothold. Well, which is it? Do we guard ourselves from Satan with the shield of faith or with the shield of sexual intercourse? The answer for married people, I think Paul would say, is faith makes use of sexual intercourse in marriage to guard the couple from Satan. Sex is a means of grace for the married couple. For the people that God leads into marriage, sexual relations are the ordained means of overcoming many temptations to sin. Temptations to adultery, temptations to protracted fantasy, temptations to pornographic reading, etc. A successful and fulfilling sexual relation frees the couple from many temptations. Faith knows it accepts it and gives thanks for it. And now notice something else in these two verses, three verses, three to five. This is very important. In verse four, Paul says that the man and the woman have rights over each other's body. They rule over each other's body. When the two become one flesh, their bodies are at each other's disposal. Each has the right to lay claim on the other's body for sexual gratification. But notice something very interesting here. What are the commands that Paul makes in verse 3 and verse 5 in view of this mutual right? He does not say, stake your claim. Take your rights, does he? doesn't say that. What does he say? Wife, give him his rights. Husband, Give her her rights. Verse 5, do not refuse the other. In other words, he does not encourage a husband or a wife who wants sexual gratification to seize it with no concern for the good of the other. Instead, he urges both husband and wife to always be ready to give their body when the other wants it. Now, I infer from this and from Jesus' teachings in general that happy and fulfilling sexual relations in marriage depend on each partner aiming to give satisfaction to the other rather than take it from the other. If it is the joy of each to give as much sexual satisfaction to the other as possible, a hundred little problems are solved. 
which we can talk about, one, two, three, four, five. But if you do that, you've got them solved. Husbands, if it is your joy to bring satisfaction to your wife, you're going to study her. You're going to be sensitive to what she needs and wants. You will learn, perhaps, for example, that preparation for successful, satisfactory sexual relations at 10 p.m. requires a word of sweetness at 7 a.m. and continues in respect and kindness all through the day. I said to the kids, foreplay for sex at night begins in the morning and lasts all day. Might be in flowers, might be in notes, might be in a phone call, might be in a touch on the head before you leave for work. And then when the time comes, you won't come on like a Sherman tank either. You will know her pace. And you will skillfully and artfully bring her along. You will say to yourself, unless she gives you the signal, her climax, not mine, is my goal. And you will learn in the long run that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And wives, it's not always the case. But I've talked to enough to know that it is the case for enough of you for me to say something about it. That the husband wants sexual relations more often than you do. And my word to you is give it to him. Martin Luther said that he thought twice a week was sufficient to keep Satan on the run. I don't know whether Katie, with all those kids, was up to it every time, but I would say to her and you, give it to him anyway. But I do not say, husbands, take it anyway. You will often go without for her sake. And I'll turn it around because there are some marriages in which it works the other way. Husbands get so blooming busy they don't have a single urge in their body anymore. They flop down when they come home. So either way, whichever way it works in your marriage, the one who feels they need it less, give it more. And the one who feels that they need it more, take it less. In other words, be a giver. Both of you, make it your aim to satisfy each other more than to satisfy yourself. Let marriage be held in honor and the marriage bed be undefiled. And that means don't sin in your sexual relations. And that means have only attitudes and actions which come from faith in the hope-giving promises of God. And we should all regularly ask ourselves, is what I am doing, is what I am feeling, does it have its roots in contentment? That's such a great test of an attitude. Does the attitude I'm having right now with my wife, does the action that's going on between us right now, does it root in contentment? Oh, would that slay many of our attitudes? Let it be so. What I've tried to do this morning is just mention three. Three things that faith will do, and I'll mention them in summary and stop. Number one, faith believes God when God says, this is good, I give it to you, for those who believe and know the truth. Second, faith increases the joy of sexual relations by freeing us 
from the guilt of the past. Faith believes the promise that Christ died that we might have guilt-free sexual relations. And third, faith wields the weapon of sexual intercourse against Satan. A married couple gives a very severe blow to that ancient serpent when they make it their mutual aim to give each other as much sexual satisfaction as possible. And it just makes me want to praise the Lord that on top of all the joy and all the pleasure, it turns out that this act is a great, deadly, fearsome weapon against our ancient foe. And I hope that makes you want to praise the Lord too.